Welcome back to the show, everybody. As we end summer for many of our listeners, we look forward to what will be in the cannabis industry. And I can think of no better analyst than Alan Brockstein, who runs the 420 Investor Investing Group on Seeking Alpha, and Julian Lin, who runs Cannabis Growth Investor on Seeking Alpha. They've both been guests many times on my podcast, the Cannabis Investing Podcast. Their first joint interview on investing experts, though Julian has been on a number of times before talking tech stocks via his other investing group, Best of Breed Growth Stocks. Today, we get into cannabis investing, investing timelines and horizons, stocks and REITs they like and don't like, reasons why they do and don't, what investors who are in the industry or just thinking about the industry, how we all should be looking at the industry, what metrics we would be wise to be utilizing, a smart and sober conversation about investing in the cannabis industry. I appreciate them. I hope you do too. Enjoy this one. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. I am Absolutely thrilled and honestly honored that this is the platform, though I suppose it makes a lot of sense that it is the platform, to bring together Julian Lin, who runs Cannabis Growth Investor, and one of the people to start the whole cannabis investing thing for real, for real, Alan Brockstein, 420 Investor. It's so great to have you both on, investing experts, Seeking Alpha in general, great to have you both on. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, thanks for inviting us. I always enjoy talking to both of you. I've been talking to both of you for a number of years, and that in itself is a, a big privilege because I definitely feel like I have a front row seat to the best analysis in the cannabis industry, and also broadly speaking. So having said that, and I think anyone following the cannabis industry knows both of your names, I think anyone on Seeking Alpha knows both of your names and the work that you've done Looking at the cannabis industry right now, what's the feeling that each of you have having been a, you know, a, a leading participant in the cannabis analysis over the past few years? How are you looking at it these days and how are you feeling about it in general? I'll let you go first, Julian. Oh, sure. I mean, so just general thoughts on investing in cannabis. I think, I think for sure, especially um, for myself, who joined this uh, investing cannabis starting around uh, the 2020, 2021 time, just right around the peak. Um, I think uh, there's definitely a set of errors, um, some from myself and some on the behalf of management from, my, from the, the personal investing errors would definitely be underestimating how quickly growth will decelerate, you know, following the pandemic. And this wasn't necessarily just related to cannabis. This happened also in e-commerce or any of the other, businesses that saw a big boom following the pandemic. And I also definitely overestimated how much synergies could, could uh, be extracted from M&A. Uh, in hindsight, it turned out that M&A just 
did not really lead to a lot of reduced operating expenses. And of course, uh, as I think every investor uh, did, we definitely underestimated the level of price compressions and just how, how vicious that price compression has been. But I think um, those factors did not have to lead to uh, where cannabis stocks are trading today. I think that the arguably um, a bigger, well, just a, and also a very significant driver of the underperformance has been self-inflicted from the management teams, very specifically related to how much debt they have taken on over the last couple of years to fund M&A. I think I have previously mentioned on a podcast with uh, Rena that I was of the view that these names should be using stock um, they should be issuing stock uh, to be funding the M&A just because it did not quite make sense to be issuing debt at the high interest rates with 280 taxes and so forth. Um, but I mean, <laughs> obviously, no one was listening to me then. Uh, so all of these names have issued a ton of debt. Um, and so they're left in the un- uncomfortable position where uh, they haven't realized the growth or the margins they expected, but they're left with all this debt. And a lot of these names, their debt is maybe multiples of their market cap. Um, of course, the better names, the names that have done better are the names that have less debt. Um, but yeah, so debt remains a very important driver of risk uh, even today. Yeah, good points, Julian. And I would say for me, I think I've been a little bit on top of this. Uh, Reno, our last two interviews have been kind of a bummer, right? <laughs> and uh, my outlook has been muted. And a year ago, I was so optimistic because I looked at how much cannabis prices have fallen. And as the rest of of 2022 played out, I kind of learned a lesson. The problem there, as Julian pointed out too, there are some problems with the cannabis industry and they should have been doing uh, equity instead of debt. But the real problem is we have the same investors. It's a pool of investors that's mainly retail and all entirely tired of cannabis, looking for new buyers. Where are they? And I've been under the assumption that they're just around the corner, but I don't know where the corner is or when it will happen. And what they're waiting for is either NASDAQ listing for American cannabis operators, or more importantly, I think the end of 280E. And I think until then, we're kind of stuck in in a rough spot. What do you think about, you know, speaking to management's um, inability to always have the proper vision and sometimes the proper implementation? What do you think of some, like Jason Wild of TerraSend, him pushing to list on the uh, TSX? Thoughts on, maybe broadly speaking, what, what management uh, is trying to navigate and, and, and change? Yeah, I'll go first. I'll say that on the TSX thing, uh, it is a small step in the right direction, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. What matters is the ability to trade on a major U.S. exchange. I don't have anything against Canada. I'm very grateful to Canada for what it did for my career, and uh, I'm I like almost every Canadian I meet. But I will say that the country is small and nobody cares about trading in Canada. I say nobody, few people care about it. And I used to manage uh, half a billion dollars of equity money with some others. And 
Before that, I was managing $10 billion of fixed income with some other professionals. And in neither place did we ever buy foreign securities, foreign listed securities, never. And I'm not saying that's 100%, but there are very few people professionally that will cross the line. Sometimes they're not allowed to, otherwise they just, they got enough. But regarding the TSX listing, I'm actually of the view that, uh, okay, I mean, obviously Jason Wilde's been, you know, a wonderful investor and spokesperson for cannabis. Um, but in regards to the specific uh, event, I, I'm not as enthusiastic. Um, I, I, I wasn't of the view that, you know, adding another listing on the TSX was the issue facing cannabis stocks. I think it's more um, related to the fundamentals, again, the debt and also just custody. Uh, having the stocks list on the TSX doesn't really change the custody issue. I mean, there's plenty of stocks listed uh, OTC that could be custodied. Um, but so it's it's more of just the federal criminality of cannabis. Uh, what I would have been hoping for these management teams to be doing, which they haven't, um, although Terrison, uh, ironically, has been in terms of debt, is that I, I was hoping they would be being more aggressive in terms of resolving their debt. Uh, even resorting to issuing equity uh, to pay down debt. And and I realize how painful it sounds, you know, to be issuing equity after it's fallen this much to pay down debt. But at the same time, you know, when you have something like a true leaf, let's talk about true leaf, right? True leaf is trading around four times adjusted EBITDA. Uh, you know, that valuation is pretty low, but at the same time, because of how much debt and interest expenses they have, they're not really generating any cash flow, um, especially if you don't include the stock-based compensation. They're not, they're not generating real earnings for shareholders. Uh, but again, four times adjusted EBITDA. At the same time, if they were simply to issue the stock and pay down debt, that valuation four times adjusted EBITDA does not get diluted. Obviously, the equity valuations in terms of price to sales or price to earnings will get diluted. But would they? Because uh, because of 280E taxes, when you're paying down these debt, you're actually creating, you know, th these are like double 20% yields, uh, free cash flow yields on the debt, um, you know, after accounting for 280E taxes. I'm of the view that if these names had substantially less debt for generating real cash flow, even, you know, no matter how pessimistic you're on cannabis, they would not be trading at four times EBITDA. Right now, the valuations here is not a custody issue. It's a debt issue. I agree, Julian, people are scared of the debt. And I happen to think that they're right to be scared, unfortunately. You know, I hate to be the guy who rains on everyone's parade because there are some cannabis stocks that here, right now, right here, I like. But the biggest are not the best. And let's just pick on Cureleaf, for instance. Uh, that is the biggest and not the best, in my opinion. And I wrote a piece on Seeking Alpha when it, I got lucky, it was at $4 when I wrote it. And that was the peak. And I said, sell the rally. That's very unlike me to tell the public to sell. And uh, although a lot of my pieces are, are, they're usually more like, don't buy it yet. But I said, sell. And my target on that is based on a pretty high multiple. Uh, Julian just said four for uh, uh, True Leave, which is correct. I was using seven for uh, purely for my year end target and I've lowered it to six and my target is now 220 for year end and the stock is pushing $3 right now, south of three. And 
So what is wrong with Cureleaf? I think a lot. They have negative tangible book value in excess of 700 million negative. That's number one. Number two, they have a ton of debt. Number three, they're not generating positive cash flow. And I, I think there really is too much debt. And I, I think what Julian says could work if they just, even at the low price, got rid of the debt, turned it into equity. It's so cheap that maybe people would buy it. But I'm going to step back and say, wait, though, until 280E goes away or uh, you can trade on the NASDAQ because the stock would be more valuable. And I don't think either of those things are going to happen right away. I'm on the lookout, but I don't think that they're going to happen immediately. Yeah. And I think that um, related to that, I think that management teams have, that's the reason why they haven't been issuing equity is that they, they seem to be hoping for some safe banking induced rally or some miracle, you know, some Hail Mary to happen like legalization or something so that their equity will go up. And then obviously issuing equity at that point will be less expensive. But I think I think at this point um, we need to come to face with the reality that our politicians, they don't they don't really seem to want to uh, remove 280 taxes or decriminalize cannabis or whatever, at least not that quickly. Um, so I think that the, the issue is that the longer they wait, you know, every single year is another year where they're having to uh, basically issue more debt to pay for their capital expenditures and interest expenses. You know, so time is not their friend when they have this much debt. Whereas, and again, they don't really have to remove all of their debt, but you know, if they were to even re remove just enough debt so that, you know, they're generating some more cash flow and that cash flow could be used to at least cover their capital expenditures and pay down more debt, then you start getting to a positive loop where time does become your friend. Um, and that, I think, in my view, kind of differentiates, you know, some of the names like Green Thumb Industries, which are profitable on a gap basis and have cash flow, you know, to pay for capital expenditures, pay down debt. Versus, unfortunately, a name like Trulieve, which, again, I highly respect their management team. I, I Their stock is extremely cheap. But the reality is every year that passes by, you know, the, the valuation position gets a bit worse just because they're probably going to have more and more debt, you know, as the years go on. Yeah. So I wanted to add on Cureleaf, I was saying what's wrong with it. And I left off one thing, their current ratio. And the current ratio, I think most of you Listeners probably know this, but just to repeat what it is, um, it's the current assets divided by the current liabilities. So a high number is good, a low number is bad. And for Cureleaf, that number is, I'm just looking up, 0 0.9 times. So in other words, they have more liabilities than assets that are due within a year. And this captures, by the way, a big thing that my tangible book value barely captures. And that is uh, the income tax payable. And, uh, and I don't even throw that income tax payable into net debt, but I think maybe I should because it's real and it's a big burden. And uh, Cureleaf owes a lot in taxes, uh, $210 million to be precise. And GTI, which I, I don't think it's time yet to buy GTI, by the way, but GTI shines compared to that. And I, I wrote a piece this weekend for my subscribers, and I said, 
GTI is a good replacement for CureLeaf. I don't own it in my model portfolios, but I know some people like the big MSOs, like MSOS. And uh, the, uh, the reason is it trades at three times tangible book, not it has a tangible book value of 551 million, which is way more than the minus 700 million in change at, at CureLeaf. And it has less net debt and its current ratio is 1.9 times because they only have 10 million of income tax owed. GTI only owes 10 million in income taxes that haven't been paid. And for CureLeaf, it's more than 200 million. And this is a big problem for, for, you know, if you look across the entire industry, not the Planet 13 that I like, they don't have that problem, but all of them and uh, owe a lot in taxes. And, uh, you know, it, it's worse at some places than others. But I would just say back to Julian's point about, you know, pushing the debt out. That's what some companies are doing. Uh, Air, for example, that has way too much debt and it's been killing perceptions about them. And they've been kind of extending it, but I don't think it does the trick, unfortunately. I think as long as they have debt, people are going to worry. And, you know, I like Hydrofarm. They have a lot of debt. It's not due until 2028, but people don't care. It's got too much debt. 2028 is a long time, especially in cannabis land. Do you feel that it's a misstep to put off paying taxes as a strategy? You know, I haven't really gotten into that, but uh, I understand what you're saying and where you're coming from. And I've heard some people talk about, like, Verano owes a lot in taxes. And, you know, I think they talk about how smart that is. It's a good source of, of money when it's so expensive to borrow. But, uh, you know, so I, I don't want to say it's stupid because I don't think it's necessarily stupid. But for investors, it's dangerous to not take it into account. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, historically, uh, deferring taxes has carried a pretty low interest rate. Um, I, I mean, all things being equal, it's not the it's not the worst idea, you know, to use um, the d deferred taxes as a source of um, capital, especially for these capital constrained businesses. However, I think I think where maybe the issues were is where they were deferring taxes and using that extra capital <laughs> to fund M&A or fund some capex that didn't pay out. Um, whereas maybe if, for example, they had used deferred taxes in order to pay down debt, you know, and just kind of, you know, change the interest rate from the debt, the high, the double digit debt to maybe the single digit uh, taxes that that might have um, worked out a bit better. One of the things that I wanted to ask, and we've definitely talked about this on the Cannabis Investing podcast before, is this notion, and it gets more convoluted probably every year, um, most definitely, this notion of timelines and in you know the time the investing timelines that investors have in the industry and how important it is to navigate where your investment is if you're not trading these stocks um what would you say to investors at the end of august 2023 knowing what we know now and not knowing what we don't know how a how important is it to pay attention to the federal legalization headlines? I will say my opinion on that briefly 
I feel like at this point, nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. I think everybody's proven that in terms of predicting things. I don't know whether or not the new election coming is going to provide some very positive sentiment for the industry. Uh, I could see it going both ways, but I definitely wouldn't put your money uh, betting on on anything. Um, And I would say that it doesn't make good use of our time as investors in the cannabis industry to predict when that is going to happen. I would say we have to navigate what's in front of us. Um, Having said that, A, do you agree with that sentiment? And B, how would you advise investors to look at their timelines and what would you advise them based on their timelines to be looking at? I know that you've mentioned a few stocks to be looking at in general. Based on timelines specifically, is there something to keep in mind unique to that? I'll go first. So I think you're 100% on that people don't know what they're talking about. They'll say things like, oh, safe banking's coming. And I'll say, who cares? Safe banking doesn't do anything really for the big public companies. It's good and I'm all for it, but who's it help? The consumer and minority small businesses. And uh, so I would start off by saying, if you're investing in cannabis, you have to remember it's a big universe. It's not just the big American operators. And so I think I do a pretty good job of covering both ancillaries and Canadian LPs. There are other sectors I just don't care about right now. There's certain biotech companies and uh, there's CBD companies. So I don't mean to say that's the whole thing, but I am finding a lot of very good values in deeply discounted, debt-free, cash-rich Canadian LPs. And, uh, and then in the, on the ancillary side, I think you know they don't pay 280E tax, and some of them don't have that much debt. I know I mentioned Hydrofarm has a lot of debt, but you can look at companies that have little or no debt. And, uh, and so that's the first thing I would say. So if you were to say, yeah, but I'm talking about American cannabis operators, what do you think there? And I would just say, I, I wrote for the New Cannabis Ventures newsletter yesterday, it's very important to start looking at price to tangible book value. And I, I know that's a term that not that many investors even care about. And if you're a growth investor, like most cannabis stock investors are, you may not even know that because it's really for growth investing, it's not really a good term. For deep value investing, it is. But I think that uh, you know, as Julian pointed to, the debt outstanding is a big problem. And if you're thinking about who's going to make it to the finish line, people with huge negative tangible book values and lots of debt do quickly are in trouble compared to those with lower amounts of debt, high tangible book value, and a long time. And so I think that that's what investors need to start looking at. Yeah, I think um, in terms of my views about you know predicting legalization, I think unless you're making predictions about it taking a long time, it's probably um, a hard hard thing to do for your portfolio. Um, I think that it it's I mean it would have been great to say a couple of years ago, but I mean better late than never. It's probably better to position your portfolio so that it could do well, even if or especially if legalization legalization takes a long time. Um, the way these balance sheets are looking at a lot of these MSOs, as I said earlier, um, time is not your friend. You know, the, the more time goes on, the more margins get pressured. And I, I mean, really, these, these names are having, they're going to have to basically either 
issue debt or equity just to, you know, sustain current operations, pay down interest. Whereas it's, I mean, yeah, I, I get that it might be a little, uh, quote, sexier, you know, to be buying these MSOs. But I am still the view that the cannabis REITs, especially names like um, IPR or or my top pick, uh, New Lake Capital Partners, are arguably the best way to invest uh, right now. Uh, just take, for example, New Lake Capital Partners. It's not going to have the same debt issues, you know, as the MSOs. In fact, New Lake Capital Partners has about $40 million of net cash, which if you are familiar with net lease REITs at all, you will know that that's pretty insane. Uh, typically, uh, when you look at a name like Realty Income, uh, Realty Income has debt to EBITDA in the five and a half times range, or maybe five times range. Uh, in other words, if they're generating 500 million in EBITDA, they have like 2.5 billion in debt, um, just sample numbers, and they have an A credit, A minus credit rating. Uh, New Lake Capital has a net cash position. All right, so they don't, <laughs> that, I can't stress that enough. That at the same time, they're not subject to 280E taxes. They're generating around 80% or higher free cash flow margins. That's the actual, mar- that's gap margins to shareholders. And they're able to pay, use that to fund a 12% dividend yield. And so, look, if in any situation where these MSOs survive, forget thrive, they just survive, don't go bankrupt, they're still running a business, shareholders do like capital, they're getting this huge dividend yield. Uh, it, it should keep growing because these lease escalators grow around 2.7% every year. Um, and, you know, growth could accelerate, you know, once the valuations pick up for the stock, they're able to issue stock and uh, acquire more properties. But the idea is that uh, the downside risk here is just, in, it's just com- black day and night compared to the MSOs while still offering uh, exposure to that upside. In fact, in my opinion, greater um, upside potential than the MSOs you know, over the long term. How would you articulate the downside risk? Because it, it would seem to me, I mean, and we've talked about NLCP and IIPR a bit on the show before uh, on the Cannabis Investing Podcast. It, are you worried about the tenants? Are you worried about the tenants' ability to survive, let alone thrive? And what else? how else would you articulate the downside risk there? Of course, if it turns out, you know, that selling cannabis legally in the United States turns out to be an unsustainable business model, then at some point, you know, all of the tenants of nearly capital stop paying rent. They all go bust, um, however that looks. <laughs> um, and at which point that that's not too great for shareholders of nearly capital. But again, remember, they have no debt. They have 39 million or 40 million in net cash. You know, just think about the worst case scenarios, right? Um, I guess worst case scenario, they just kind of have to sell off all their properties, you know, and get some recovery for these properties. Again, there's this is a net cash position. Uh, this is this doesn't become a zero. Um, far from it, right? Um, you, basically, the only way you get to this apocalyptic scenario where they have to sell off all their properties is if you have the names like um, Cure Leave, True Leave, uh, uh, Columbia Care, Green Thumb. These these names have to go bust before New Lake Capital reaches that position where they have to sell off their properties and probably you know sell it at some discount and return the capital to shareholders. Um, that downside sounds pretty good to me. Um, obviously, it it wouldn't be ideal if everyone goes bust, but um, 
whereas the MSOs, there are scenarios where they go to zero just if legalization takes too long or if they never pay down debt. With New Lake Capital, that's just it, it's just not there. Yeah, I don't cover New Lake Capital on my focus list of 26 names, but I looked at it while you were talking. And in the past, I've been laughed at because I warn investors it's OTC, it's not New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, and they're like, ah, what's that matter? And I don't know that it matters that much except for the size of the investor base. But I will say positively, uh, what uh, you pointed out is correct. They have a lot of cash and no debt or limited debt. Uh, they have a lot more cash. But I think more importantly for Rena, uh, Rena, sorry, is uh, it's trading below tangible book value. So it's it's already factoring in that they won't be able to get if they have to liquidate their assets, they won't be able to get full value. It's already factored in. Yeah, it's just, it's just kind of curious. I, I think the fact that NLCP trades at this 12% yield, and again, I, I need to be clear that not all cannabis REITs, I don't like all cannabis REITs, um, but I, that's why I'm specifically talking about new capital REIT properties. But I, the fact that the landlord is trading at these valuations, um, basically seven times real estate earnings, um, it, it illustrates just how pessimistic things are in the cannabis sector. Uh, the way I view that is, um, it's, it, the pessimism is not necessarily defined by how cheap the MSOs get. It, it's defined by how, um, how much the valuations overall are from reality. Just talking about, again, I'm, I'm not trying to hate on Cure Relief so much. I know we've talked a lot about Cure Relief. Um, but like the fact that Cure Relief is trading at around nine times EBITDA, whereas Green Thumb is trading at six times EBITDA, you know, that, that indicates how weird this sector is, uh, given that, you know, Green Thumb is, has less that it's profitable on a gap basis. Um, just the fact that valuations almost seem to not make sense, that is an indication of how pessimistic things are. Um, yeah, again, with the case of New Lake Capital, I think it's being, it's like a baby thrown out with the bathwater. I think that, Investors, they don't want to look at the MSOs overall. Like the generalist is not looking at the cannabis sector just because they can't or they just see the stocks going down. They don't want to. And I think, ironically, investors in the cannabis sectors, they're, they seem just so razor focused on the MSO specifically, just kind of wanting to keep hurting themselves. They don't, they're not even expanding their horizons to look at, you know, names that are super profitable with no debt. Alan, I'm curious, speaking of no debt, and you were talking about the Canadian LPs that you like, uh, you've been on the Cannabis Investing Podcast talking about Organogram, and you've written about some Canadian stocks, as you mentioned recently. Is debt the number one reason there? And do you want to expand a little bit on, on what you like about them? So I don't think that Canada is booming. And I think it's great that it was the first G7 nation to go legal. They kind of screwed it up. Mainly, the screw-ups were, uh, besides the taxation rate, which was a screw-up, uh, having the provinces be the middleman is a big problem. And, uh, but, uh, but I think that there are some companies that have proven themselves that as tough as Canada is, they can fall slower, grow faster, uh, whatever the case. And um, I think that more importantly for investors they are federally legal and they're trading these companies are trading debt-free companies organogram and chronoscoop are trading 
way below tangible book value. They're rich on cash and they have uh, almost no debt or no debt. And then Village Farms has a little bit of debt, um, but I, I just wrote about that recently. And I think they're doing very well in their Canadian business. Unfortunately, investors have to decide what's their lettuce business worth? What's their CBD business worth? And I say, just go with zero. It's still worth what it's more than what it's trading at. Yeah, and I guess this relates to the discussion on Curaleaf, maybe something positive you could finally say about Curaleaf. Um, regarding the Canadian stock, there was a rumor um, in the last three months about Curaleaf specifically potentially acquiring Kronos. Um, that, that was a really interesting, interesting idea, just given it seems random, but if you if you frame it from the perspective of balance sheet, it was actually quite impressive and quite quite interesting. Uh, because Kronos has um last time I checked, you know, just under one billion dollars of net cash. Obviously, they're kind of burning cash pretty quickly because they're not close to profitability. But the idea there is like you got this Canadian operator who's not quite like all the rest. Uh, you know, you got the likes of Chilray, Canopy, they, uh, Aurora Cannabis. All of these names are very highly levered. Uh, but Kronos here has, you know, almost a billion of net cash. Um, the, the idea that Cure Leaf could maybe acquire them, uh, ideally with a all stock, uh, not you know, no cash involved in that tra transaction, uh, maybe shut down the Cana Canadian operations and just bring that cash to the balance sheet. That was that 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 would have been very interesting. You know, that would have um, probably almost fully addressed you know all of Cure Leaf's balance sheet issues. Um, but again, no no deal has been announced. Uh, but I think my view of Curaleaf would improve if they did that. Well, Julian, I I, I like your your analysis. Usually, I have to take a hundred and eighty degree difference. I think that was BS. And how how would that happen? Are the people that run Chronos that stupid? I don't think so. And why would they take the expensive stock of Curaleaf? They're not that stupid. Trust me. Oh, I mean, I'm not speaking to the likelihood of the transaction. And again, there's, there hasn't been any news since the rumors happened. Um, but I'm just speaking like if it were to happen, um, you know, that, that would have that would probably um, favorably influence my view of purity. Um just because historically they've kind of been a growth at any cost kind of operator. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they're able to address their balance sheet issues, that would be a positive, I think. Yeah. Well, they got Germany, though. Go Cureleaf in Germany. Woo, woo. I'm, I'm curious. We talked about the small pool of investors. And Alan, you know, you question whether or not it makes a difference if a company's on a major exchange. I saw news today or, or late last week or, or this week about Agrify, um, you know, receiving notification about being delisted from NASDAQ. Do you do either of you have thoughts on the companies aside from IIPR, like Intercure, like Agrify, uh, any of the companies that do trade on the major exchange? So, so I, I think that investors are kind of overly worried about reverse splits, but a, a reverse split will take care of this. And I think the problem is if you argue about that, then they'll just say, yeah, but they already did a reverse split and then it went down again. See, see, but they're, they're mixing up the reality of bad companies with still bad valuations. And uh, so I, I don't really cover Agrify, but I, I don't make a big deal out of it. 
And you know, Organogram just did a reverse split so it could keep on the NASDAQ. And people were making that argument with me. I'm gonna buy it when it goes down. It, it, it's up now. And, and what, would you, what would you say, how do you reassure shareholders or prospective shareholders about that? Well, first of all, I say, who knows? Because, you know, zero is the floor, unfortunately, for any stock markets. It's inefficient. Why are people paying so much for Cureleaf against GTI? It makes no sense. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they're inefficient. And I think... Uh, uh, that's really the, the thing that I try to convey to my, uh, anybody that listens to me. Just because you're smart and you have it figured out, it doesn't mean you'll be instantly right. Yeah, I think uh, when uh, stocks are trading on the major exchanges, there definitely is some curious things going on there. Um, uh, I think that, uh, especially, I mean, if you just look at IPR versus Nile Capital, um, both very similar names, uh, you know, um, doing net lease, net leases with the cannabis operators. Um, but, you know, uh, whereas New Lake Capital has been focusing on the limited license states um, and they have no debt, you know, IAPR, again, IAPR also has very little debt. Um, they have $400 million of cash, of debt, sorry, um, which is around one times debt to EBITDA. Um, but they, they focused, they, they've, they've been a little more, uh, aggressive in terms of acquisitions uh, over the past couple of years. So they have a lot of assets maybe in California or, you know, a lot of those unlimited licensed states. Um, but e even so, they're trading, you know, at a significant premium to New York Capital, largely probably because of their NASDAQ listing. But I think beyond that, I think it's very interesting that I see a lot of investors favoring a name like AFC Gamma, uh, which is uh, listed on the um, NASDAQ, even though I'm of the view that um, – just the way AFC Gamma is structured, um, it's it's a lot more risky uh, than a New Lake Capital. Just remember, uh, new, uh, AFC Gamma is owning the mortgages backing these properties, but they're not necessarily owning the properties themselves. Um, just that distinction allows them to be listed on the exchanges, but but that doesn't that that means they're not as safe, you know, because they they don't already own the properties. Uh, in the worst case, when someone defaults on their property. Um, AFC Gamma is just going to get um, ownership of the property, whereas in the case of New Lake Capital, because it's an operating lease, if the tenant defaults on the lease, uh, New Lake Capital can sue the company for damages of that lease. Um, that's an important distinction, even though New Lake Capital's you know trading uh, arguably cheaper you know than AFC Gamma. I mean, I realize AFC Gamma has a high, higher dividend yield, but that's just mainly because of a more aggressive payout payout ratio. Um, and, and I'll also note that AFC Gamma is externally managed. Uh, I, I analyze for subscribers. With, with some history on that name. Too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, yeah, there, there, there is some. I, I won't go into that history of their past BDCs and stuff. Um, but at the, at the very least, the way it's structured right now, um, the management is the, the current CEOs, I mean, the executives team, if you were to just look at, how much stock they own of AFC Gamma, it might look like they're aligned with shareholders just because they're pretty sizable shareholders. But you have to do some digging whenever there's these externally managed uh, structures. Uh, it turns out that uh, that same executive team, they own most nearly 100% of the external manager. Um, so, And the external manager is compensated directly based on the growth of assets of AFC Gamma, not assets per share. So they're, they're really 
incentivized to grow at any cost just to grow that AU so they can earn more management fees. Uh, and normally, the market is pretty smart about these things. They understand uh, with uh, mortgage rates or these externally managed um, rates that they, t- they they deserve to trade at a pretty big discount you know, to the other internally managed rates. But in this case, I think because AFC Gamma is traded on the major exchanges versus Neely Capital trading over the counter, you got this weird discrepancy where in spite of the clear um, higher risk in terms of the business model as well, and also the risk of the management alignment, you know, AFC Gamma is still trading, you know, where it is versus Neely Capital. Alan, any, any specific thoughts there? I don't really follow the REITs so closely. I, I guess I cover refi too. And uh, I think Julian knows REITs more than I do. But uh, I, I will say uh, when it comes to the REITs, I think that, uh, you know, if you think about what they're uh, buying or, or lending to, um, it may not be usable. And I, I, I think, you know, we were talking about the trading to a big, tangible book value discount for uh, in LCP. But uh, I think that, you know, investors seem to be worried about if they get these properties back, what are they going to do with them? It's, it's not like the markets are going so well that, oh, yeah, I'll take it. Please give it to me. No, it's not. It's not working like that right now. And all, a lot of the states are having uh, disarray. And uh, I think that, you know, I, I'm, I don't own any REITs now in my, in my model portfolios. And I think I agree with Julian, they are cheap, especially the one he's talking about. Uh, but I'm just not sure they're going to bounce anytime soon. I, I do see them as less risk than uh, certain MSOs, that's for sure. Well, first of all, thank you both very much for joining. Uh, I hope that this is the first conversation that we have because I think a lot of there's been so much excitement and then (laughs) disappointment around the cannabis industry, both in investing and just at large. And I think politically, there's a lot of fits and starts. And uh I I think there is a lot of change to be had. There are a lot of catalysts coming. Who knows when those catalysts may be arriving? We don't know. But there are definitely some interesting things to pay attention to as investors. So I appreciate you bringing a lot of sober analysis to this industry. And I'll I'll leave both of you with your uh, final thoughts and and words to investors. I'll I'll step up. Uh, So Thank you for doing this interview, and I agree with you. Uh, fits and starts in our industry. Sometimes people love them way too much, like in early 21, and sometimes they hate them, like now. And just because everybody hates them doesn't mean they're a buy. And I've been telling my subscribers, I said, the reason you're subscribing isn't because I'm going to tell you how to make money today. Unfortunately, unless you're willing to go short, I don't say that to them, but unfortunately, unless you're willing to go short, it's really hard to make money in cannabis stocks right now. But by staying on top of it and watching the market, um, I think that the time will come when those catalysts are are more near term, real time. And wouldn't it be great to be able to buy at a low price when nobody else wants to buy? That would be great if it were a great time. 
Yeah, Julian, before you answer, I'll say I just read a comment today on a Seeking Alpha article, and uh, the commenter said something to the effect of, you know, that Seeking Alpha teaches you how to become a better investor. It's not necessarily about spoon feeding, although sometimes that is provided. And and I think to your point, people that are in, in, interested in this industry to be following along the way as we are now before it breaks out again. Uh, I think there is a lot of, you know, insight and edification waiting. Um, Julian, your thoughts? Yeah, again, I share um, Alan, Alan's thoughts. I think maybe investors, they got to realize that the um, amount of near-term catalysts on the horizon are probably pretty slim. Um, at this point, especially for the MSOs, it, I think the only catalysts in play are going to be any that um, address uh, their cost of capital. But, you know, those, those may not happen anytime soon. And even in the case of green thumb, you know, there's no guarantee, you know, that there will be any uh, removal to ADE or anything there. Uh, like even in the case of my new late capital, my, my, my top pick that I like, uh, like in terms of catalyst for full upside, you know, those tend to be very directly aligned with whether or not there's an actual fundamental recovery in the cannabis sector. Uh, and again, there's not, that's not really under the control of the tenants or the landlords. Uh, I think that investors, um, it's important to perhaps, even though you might have a lot of losses in the sector, remember that cannabis is not the only sector you can invest in. Uh, even right now, after a big rally, you know, there's still a lot of uh, compelling value that you could be finding in the broader markets, you know, within the S&P 500 or even within tech. There's still a lot that I'm I'm lacking within tech. I think just, you know, uh, keep, keep your horizons open. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. So Julian Lin runs the Cannabis Growth Investor, and uh, I will just point out since he mentioned tech that he also runs an investing group called Best of Breed Growth Stocks. And Alan Brockstein, the legend, runs 420 Investor. Both of those investing groups are on Seeking Alpha, and you can find a transcript of this conversation on Seeking Alpha as well. Thank you both very much. Thank you, and it was great talking with you, Julian. Yes, same, same with you, Alan. Thanks, Rena, for having us. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.